I'm going to start with a bit of a confession. I was driving in this morning. It was really early. Sun hadn't risen. Kind of coming in, and all week long, I've been preparing this teaching out of Mark chapter one, a passage that we're going to look at in just a few moments. And I've been preparing this teaching, and as I was driving in, I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments, but I just really sensed the Lord saying, Dave, what you prepared all week is not what you're going to share this morning. And I was like, ah, that's like all I got. Like, you know, if I can't share what I've prepared, you know, what, what are we going to do, Lord? And so I'm just kind of praying and just really sensed, hey, you're supposed to go a different direction than, than you'd planned. And so as I was praying, this question kept coming to my heart, kept coming into my mind. And I don't know if you take notes or if you write things down, but I would encourage you to write this question down because it's going to frame our time together in Mark chapter 1 this morning, but this was the question that just kept coming to my heart in the midst of my prayer this morning for you and for our time in the Word, and this is the question. Is Jesus really worth rearranging your entire life for? Is Jesus really worth rearranging your entire life for? And I was thinking about that question, I'm like, that's a weird question. It's a weird thing to think about as I'm driving in, you know, early and, and getting ready to come and teach and preach. And yet God just kept pushing that question into my heart. And I went, man, in so many ways, that question is the framework that Mark chapter 1 is moving within. And the, the stuff that I think we're going to have to wrestle with even in our time together in the Word uh, today. And so I was thinking a few years ago, I had a good friend of mine. And uh, he, he's still here in Nashville. He's a pastor. Great guy. Uh, just a really amazing communicator leading a, a great church. A few years ago on a Sunday afternoon, he had just finished teaching two or three times. He is sitting at his house, uh, hanging out with his two older boys, watching football, sitting there watching football, and his phone rings. And this is kind of a weird thing because normally on Sundays, uh, he would turn off his phone and just kind of rest in between the services at his church. But he left the phone on, and he looks down, and he doesn't recognize the phone number. And for whatever reason, he decides to open it. Normally, I would screen it, but he answers the, the phone. And as soon as he answers, there's a woman's voice on the other line. And immediately, he, he goes, oh, I recognize this voice. And I don't know if you ever had one of these moments where you don't recognize the number. You know you know the voice. And so she begins talking, and he's trying to figure out, okay, how do I know this woman? Who is she? And she begins by saying, hey, we've never met. And he's like, okay, kind of off the hook. She says, we, we've never met, um, but one of my staff members... Uh, met your youngest son at a soccer game recently, and uh, she saw him out uh, playing, and we looked at him and thought, he would be perfect for this video we're getting ready to shoot. And so we went over. We didn't tell him what we're getting ready to do. We asked for his parents' contact info, and so he gave me your number. And so my friend is just listening to this. He still doesn't know who he's talking to, and she goes, hey, so my, my name is Taylor, and I'm a musician here in Nashville, and we're getting ready to film this video, and I was wondering if you and your family would spend the week with us, come up to Rhode Island, and uh, you're just going to be my kind of fake family in the video. You're going to go where I go, do what I do, and we'll film it, and we'll have fun together. We'll cover all the costs. And my friend is like, what, Taylor? You know, he's like starting to connect the dots. He said, can you tell me your name again? And she said, this is Taylor Swift. And he had one of those moments that all of you would have. You'd go, no way, Taylor Swift is calling my phone. But he begins to realize he's actually talking to Taylor Swift, and he has this moment of just kind of like temporary freak out. You know, he's not even a Taylor Swift fan, but he's talking to this kind of larger-than-life, you know, personality, and he's just freaking out. And he's like, "Shake it off, bro," you know. And like, we gotta, gotta, gotta get myself together. And he probably didn't say that because this was years before that song, anyways. But he, he was thinking, and he starts talking with her, and she said, "So can you do this? Can can you go?" 
uh, on this trip, can you go on this journey? And he said, without even talking to his wife, without even looking at his schedule, he said, we're in. Like, like we'll, we'll do it. And he canceled the plans, pull the kids out of school, tell my wife she can cancel her job, like whatever, whatever it is, we'll do it. And I remember him going on this adventure, and for a week they spent uh, this time with Taylor Swift and their families in the music video and just kind of this amazing moment. And he comes back, and we're talking, and and I said, so tell me, like, what was that like? And he said, it was an amazing experience. He said, but in the midst of it, I learned all this stuff about me. He said, and it is amazing how quickly someone will rearrange the entirety of their life when they think the person who is offering the invitation is worth it. He said, we just thought she was worth it. And without even thinking, it's like, clear the calendar. Pull the kids out of school, like quit the job, like, whatever you got to do for a week, let's, let's go be a part of this. He said, when you really think that someone is worth it, like you will go to unbelievable lengths to step into whatever it is that, that, that they're inviting you to. And I was thinking about that moment this, this morning as I was praying and wrestling with this question and thinking about Mark chapter one, because what happens in Mark chapter one is not just a religious experience and it's not just a revival. Jesus shows up and he begins his ministry and he looks at this group of people and he says, listen, God is doing something so amazing in the world and through his kindness and through his grace, you can be a part of the adventure that God is writing. You can step into the story of God right here, right now. The eternal life can become the abundant life right here in your story. Do you want to be a part of what God is doing? And Jesus comes declaring this news. And you can almost kind of see the, the sparkle in his eyes as he's standing before this group of people. And Jesus is saying, listen, there's more than songs and sermons. There's more than sitting and listening and singing. I have not come all the way from heaven to earth. I'm not dealing with a sin problem just so you can enjoy an hour on Sunday in a cool bar in downtown Nashville. He says, I have come so that the fullness of God's life can get a hold of you. Who wants in on this? And you can almost see it in Mark chapter 1. It's a chapter of the Bible that is just like humming with power and energy and force and life. And Jesus says, who wants it? Do you want to be a church person? Nothing wrong with that. Or do you want to be a person who the power and the grace of God's life is flowing through your very veins? And he says, that's what I've come to offer. And the question that I keep wrestling with kind of in the midst of this this morning is Jesus really worth rearranging the entirety of your life for? Because Jesus doesn't come asking for just a little, hey, give me a few moments in the morning, pray a prayer, get in the water, sing a song. No, Jesus is saying, what I'm after is the entirety of your life. And I think one of the questions, maybe the question that you have to wrestle with, is Jesus worth rearranging your life for? Is he good enough? Is he bold enough, is he beautiful, is he powerful enough to rearrange all the plans, all the decisions so that his way can become your way? And in Mark chapter one, we're gonna get this glimpse. Jesus is gonna come into this place called Galilee and he's gonna pronounce this like great news that God has done something so that you and I can step in. And you're gonna get a picture of four ordinary guys who are gonna step into it, not because they've all of a sudden been filled with courage in God, but they're gonna step into this life of God because all of a sudden they've had clarity as to who Jesus is. And when they see how good and how big and how real he is, they go, what, you know what? Jesus, you are worth trading everything for. And you've gotta hear this, ethos, we are not 
just a gathering of people coming to listen and to sing songs and to worship and leave. We're a group of people coming together. And whether you realize you're answering this question or not, this is the question that we're answering. Is Jesus actually worth it? And together we're trying to sort this out. So Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to spend a few moments. Open up the word with me. We're going to start in verse 14. And my goal is to just keep this as simple and clear as possible. I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. But this is the word of God out of Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14. It says, after John the Baptist was put into prison, we'll look at that in several weeks when we get to Mark chapter 6. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent, or that literally means make a U-turn with your life. Turn around and believe or trust the good news of who God is. And so I love this moment. Jesus has just come out of the, the desert temptation. He's just been baptized. He's gone into the desert where he's tempted by the devil. We looked at that together last week. And then here he's beginning his public ministry, and he begins his public ministry by going into this place called Galilee. Now, if you grew up in this region of the Middle East, Galilee is still there. If you would have grown up there, you would have known exactly what was happening. You would have pictured things. And I want to make sure that we can see it and hear it and feel it, because if you can't imagine where this is happening, it's hard to imagine the story. Galilee was this like amazing, beautiful, picturesque place that so many people wanted to live and grow up. It was a few thousand miles below sea level, kind of surrounded by mountains. The cities of Galilee were nestled along this huge, kind of beautiful, crystal clear lake. Had a booming fishing industry, great school system. It was the type of place where you'd want to raise your kids, get married. It's where you'd want to go on vacation. And so you can imagine this if Mark was writing this book today. And he was trying to put it in our terms. Maybe he'd say something like this. Right after Jesus was baptized and tempted in the desert, he went into Hilton Head Island. Or he went to Destin or to Seaside or wherever it is that you like to kind of get away and relax. And here's the beautiful thing that I want you to see. Is what Jesus was offering to these people was not just good news for those who were broken and had bottomed out in their life. The good news of Jesus was compelling even to those who had everything put together. Jesus said, this invitation, it is so big, it is so glorious, it can compete with anything. You're on vacation in Hawaii, it doesn't matter. Good news, God has done something, and he wants you to be a part of the adventure. And Jesus shows up in the midst of this comfortable place declaring this glorious news because he knew that God was not just interested in a Sunday morning hour or a 15-minute quiet time or a mission trip to Honduras. He knew that what Jesus was after was the fullness of God pouring into the lives of ordinary people. And Jesus shows up and he says, good news. God has done everything that needs to be done. He is opening a door, verse 15. The time has come. He's opened a door. So that the life of God can fill your life. Who wants that? So he keeps telling the story, Mark does. says Jesus is going to Galilee proclaiming the good news. And it's like the camera angle begins to zoom in. And he's going to give us this little picture of four men who in the middle of their work day, Jesus is going to show up and he's going to call them to this radical way of living. Jump down to verse 16 with me. It says, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and they followed Jesus. When Jesus had gone a little further down the shore, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their fishing nets as well. And without delay, Jesus called them. 
And immediately they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and they followed Jesus. This is the word of God from Mark chapter one. So I want you to picture this for a moment. Jesus has come into Galilee and he's declaring this amazing news that God has done something to change the way you live your life. God is doing something. That's the the heart of his message. And he says, you can be a part of it. And so Jesus goes for this walk on the beach. You can imagine, he probably takes his sandals off. He's holding up the white robe and the blue sash or whatever it is that Jesus wore. And he's walking along the seashore and he sees these fishermen. And I don't want you to picture your redneck friends that fish for pleasure. These are not guys that are dipping and wearing the hat with the, the fish hook in it. This is not something they're doing for recreation. This is a vibrant commercial business that these guys are leading. During the days of Jesus, the Sea of Galilee was the primary port that would export fish. In their world, beef and chicken were not the primary food source as fish was. And so to be a fisherman in Galilee was a really rich and successful type of job to be a part of. It's like going to Seattle and walking through Pike's Market and you see all the fish and you realize there's something here that's happening. And I want you to notice this because Jesus... He shows up to these guys in the midst of a life that is going really well. And he says, man, I know your life is going really well. God has something so much more for you. The the, the good news of who Jesus is is so much bigger. It's so much more robust, so much more powerful. Jesus shows up, and I want you to just wrestle with the audacity of what he does here. He walks into their workplace. I mean, picture this, Monday afternoon. He walks into the middle of their ordinary day. He says, listen, I know business is going great, but I want to invite you into the life of God. Leave everything behind and come and follow me. And I go, either Jesus was the most arrogant man that ever walked the face of the planet, or he knew something about God that these men had yet to see. And in the course of just a few moments, a simple conversation In the middle of an ordinary day, these ordinary men let go of their fishing nets. They leave behind the hired hands. One of them even leaves their own father in the boat. And they say, Jesus, wherever it is that you go, we'll go. And here's the question that I kept wrestling with this morning. What did they see in Jesus that made it worth rearranging the entirety of their lives for to follow him? And has your heart been captured with that picture of that Jesus? Is he really worth rearranging the entirety of your life for? Because if Jesus is not worth rearranging the entirety of your life for, this honestly is just a waste of time. We can come here and have friends and sing songs, but if he's not worth it, this is a waste of energy. But they saw something in this man. He said, you know what? Here we go. I want to imagine what the invitation would have sounded like. Look down at verse 17. We're not given a ton of details, but we're given the big idea. Jesus shows up to him, and he says, you come and follow me, and I will make you into something that you can never imagine. He says, you come and follow me. Come be with me. Come do life with me. And God is going to do something in your life that you can never imagine. This invitation, it'd be really interesting if we had enough time to split up and to read it and to think about it and say, man, what do you see God doing in this invitation? But there are all of these beautiful things that begin to arise to the surface because in the midst of this simple question, this invitation that Jesus gives the disciples, all this beautiful stuff is happening. I want you to notice one of these things is that Jesus, in the midst of the invitation, is promising these men his presence. And so I love it. He doesn't walk up to the fishing boat and throw a Bible in it and say, hey, read this. 
figure it all out, keep the rules, do it just right, and then you'll get to heaven. He said, no, good news. God has done something that can change the way you live. Do you want to come do life with me? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? I remember one of my mentors, he used to always ask me, Dave, do you know what it means to follow Jesus? I say, what does it mean to follow Jesus? He says, it means you're following Jesus. And I'm like, what? That's that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'm going to tweet it, but it's still dumb, and I don't really know what it means. And he'd say, no, think about it. He says, to to be a Christian is not, oh, you're a great rule keeper, or you're a great church attender, or song singer. It's, It's not even that you've been able to perfectly manage your morality. To be a Christian means that you're leaning the entirety of your hope, your life, your trust into what Jesus has done and not into what you've done. It's that you are becoming a person of God's presence. That your single hope, your single hope in standing before God is the perfect work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. That is it. <laughs> that, that's the gospel, that God has done something. And because he has done something, you can step into a life that you could have never had. And Jesus offers his invitation. He says, come be with me. Come know me. Come love me. I think about my friend that went up to Rhode Island to, to hang with Taylor Swift for a week. I mean, what, a, what an amazing adventure that was. The truth is they would not have left everything to go to Rhode Island, although I'm sure it was great. You could go to Rhode Island anytime. Why'd they go? To be with her. That was the reward. Do you know what the reward for following Jesus is? Jesus. He's the reward. He's the reward of being a disciple. It's getting to know him and to love him and to experience all of life with him. And in the midst of this invitation is a promise of God's presence. Jesus says, come be with me. He says, come know me. Come into the inner circle of God's family. But it's not just a a promise of presence. It's a promise of participation. Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to, to come with me. I want you to go where I go, to do what I do, to see what I see, to say what I say. Like, wherever I go, that's, that's the deal. That's what it means to follow Jesus is that we, we, we do what he's doing. I love 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. It says, anyone that claims to be in Jesus is someone who is living as Jesus lived. Very convicting passage, right? To be in Jesus means like how Jesus lives is how we live, what he is doing. And Jesus doesn't lay it all out here for them. They had no idea how big the adventure was going to be. But do you remember what these men were going to get to see? Him raise the dead and heal the sick calm the storms and drive out demons, to clear the temple, to do amazing things. And Jesus looks at him and he says, do you want the fullness of God coursing through your life? Do you want your life to become a conduit of God's goodness and grace? That's what God's after. So you participate, come follow me. Come be about the things that I'm about. Have you ever noticed how wired for participation you and I are? It's like woven into your being as a, as a human. It's how God made us. It's the reason we don't just watch football, but we want to play fantasy football because we want to participate. It's the reason you don't just watch a talent show, but you want to vote on the next American Idol or whatever it is. It's the reason my, favorite, uh, my kid's favorite restaurant is the Funky Griddle. I don't know if any of you been to the Funky Griddle, but it's this pancake place, and it's a brilliant idea. I wish I would have thought of it. You go to the Funky Griddle, you pay them money, they give you pancake batter, then you cook it yourself. And I'm like, this is, this is an amazing scam, you know. I could have done this at home for a, a third of the cost, but why do my kids love going? Because they love participating. Some of us are so bored in our Christian journey 
Because somewhere along the way, we thought to be a follower of Jesus meant you sat and listened instead of going to do. He says, come, participate. There's this promise of presence and participation. There's this, this promise of purpose in this. Jesus looks at these men and he says, man, you've built this successful fishing empire, but God wants to use your life just as you've drug fish in from the shore your whole life. God wants to use you to drag people out of brokenness, to drag people out of hell, to drag people out of the clutches of the enemy that seeks to destroy them. Do you want to be a part of that? I mean, can you imagine? You can just imagine their hearts are just beating like Jesus is saying, hey, anybody want to go on a rescue mission? Anybody want to get in the water? Anybody want to roll up their hands and roll up their sleeves, get their hands dirty in what God is trying to do in the world? He says, God has this purpose for you. And I want you to notice this. This is, there's so many things to love about Jesus. But one of my favorite things is that Jesus, when he comes to us as we are, he loves us too much to leave us there. And so often when Jesus comes to us as we are, he never belittles us. So he doesn't look at these guys and go, oh, you're going to spend your whole life fishing? Like he doesn't dog the fishing industry. He doesn't motivate them by making them feel small. He motivates them by increasing their vision of what God is doing in the world. And one of the ways that Jesus motivates us, this is how you know the gospel's at work in your life, is so often the gospel motivates us not by belittling the things we currently love, but just by giving us a bigger vision of the one we were meant to love. And what happens for these men is as their vision of Jesus increases, as they begin to believe, man, he really is who he says he is, everything, in, everything else in their life begins to feel a little less important. And in this moment, they see Jesus for who he is. And it says in verse 18, and immediately they dropped the nets and they left the boats and they followed him. Like, can you imagine how weird this would be? I mean, just put this in your own context. I'm trying to imagine going home to my wife and kids. And it's like, hey, I quit the job today. Oh, did you? (laughs) What's the plan? Well, I don't know, but this rabbi wearing you know, a white shawl and a blue sash came and asked me to give the rest of my life to following him. And we're kind of in wherever that goes. He mentioned something about a cross. Don't really understand it, but I hope you're cool with it. Can you imagine this? And I was reading this this week going, what courage? What courage it would take to drop the nets, to let go and to say, you know what, Jesus? I really believe you are worth rearranging my life for but I think what's happening in Mark chapter 1 is bigger than courage. You know, I was praying about that this week, going, God, give me more courage. And I sense the Spirit saying, you don't need more courage. What you need is more clarity. What you need is just a clearer picture of how good and powerful and real Jesus is. Because the truth is, as we see Jesus more clearly, so often the natural outpouring of that clear vision is courage to step into whatever it is that God is inviting us into. And so I was wrestling with this this morning, praying, okay, God, God, are you worth this? Jesus, are you really worth this? And there's this elephant in the room that I think we have to address, right? Because, you know, for the disciples, they're sitting there in an ordinary day, and Jesus physically shows up amongst them and says, come follow me. And the choice that they were left with was, do we physically follow this Jesus that we can see? And so for years, I would read this passage and go, what do we do with this? Because we, you know, we can't see Jesus, You know, Jesus will be present with you in your work tomorrow. He'll be with you in your school and in your marriage. And Jesus will be there. But the truth is, most of you probably aren't going to see Jesus physically. 
And so how in the world do, do we begin following Jesus? How do we begin walking with him when we can't physically get out of the boat and walk down the shore, you know, stride by stride with the one that's leading us? And as I was wrestling with that question, I kept thinking of a passage, John chapter 20, verse 29. You should go back and read it this week. John 20, verse 29. Jesus is talking to the disciples right after the resurrection. He's just come back from the dead. And he looks at these disciples and he says, uh, you believe me, you follow me because you can see me. He says, but there will be people who will follow me even though they've never seen me. And they will be blessed. And remember thinking about that passage going, wow, this is amazing. Jesus says not only is it possible to follow him when you can't see him, the real reward, the real blessing is for those of us that are learning to follow him right here in the reality of our real lives even though we can't see him. And I go, have you ever thought about this, that Jesus says <laughs> that you actually sit in the position of blessing when it comes to following Jesus, that you're not at a disadvantage so I go, God, how could this possibly be true? How, how can you help me see you more fully? As I was praying, just two tangible things came to the surface. And I, I want to leave this just with kind of two practical handles. How do we begin to follow the Lord and to sense him and see what he's doing? And how do we have a bigger vision of who he is? And uh, two really practical things that I, I want to invite you to wrestle with. The first one is that we must create space in our life to hear the voice of Jesus so that our vision of Jesus can increase. We must create space in our life to hear the voice of Jesus so that our vision of Jesus can actually increase. The reason a lot of us may not be hearing the invitation to get out of the boat is not because you haven't heard the voice of Jesus, it's just because your life is being bombarded with so many other voices. Have you noticed just how distracted we are as a culture? There's no culture on earth that is busier and more exhausted than us. And sometimes in our attempts to be present with everyone and everything, we fail on actually being present with the one that we were made for. And so I'm going, how do you begin to create space in your life so that you can actually hear the voice of Jesus? How do you create space so that when he shows up and says, drop the nets, you go, oh, that's his voice? Because in John 10, Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. And I go, how do we know the voice of Jesus? I think there are kind of two ways that I've found in my life over and over and over that have helped me create space. And you could add to these, but I just want to give you some practical things to think through. Uh, one is creating a, a space for solitude. And another is creating a space for community. And it sounds like those things are opposites, but they're actually the, uh, two sides of the same coin. They, they, they work together. And I want you to see this for a moment. Remember when I was younger, everybody would say, oh, you need to make time for God. You need to be alone. You need to be quiet. I'm an extreme extrovert. And so every time I heard uh, the idea of solitude, I'm like, that sounds terrible. Why, why is that a spiritual discipline? I don't want to be alone ever. And I, I always thought that solitude was about being alone. Solitude is not about being alone. Solitude is about being alone with God. There's a big difference. It's about creating space in your life where the only voice that is coming in to the frequency in your heart is the voice of God. I just want to ask you for a moment. How many hours a week do you spend just you and the Lord? How many hours just... You and Christ. And I know some of you are going, hours? Like, I'm, I'm just feeling good to be here on a Sunday. We're glad you're here. But, uh, yeah, hours. 
Think about how much of our life and our time we waste unintentionally. I did this experiment recently where every time I got on social media, I just kind of wrote down how many minutes I spent on it. I was just curious. And I was blown away how many, how many hours of the week I was just losing. Or how many times my, my family would leave to go do something, and the first thing i do is get on my phone or get on the internet or whatever it was, right? I was just like unbelievably miserable being alone at times. I thought, what if we began to recapture some of that? What if you just kind of committed, you know, before Jesus can rearrange your life, he'll probably start by rearranging your day. And what if you just made the decision, you know what, 20 minutes before breakfast and 20 minutes before lunch and 20 minutes before dinner and 20 minutes before bed, you know, that time I usually kind of spend transitioning and doing nothing, I'm just going to use that to be with the Lord. I'm going to pray, I'm going to read, I'm going to ask God big questions, I'm going to let him search my heart. Do you realize just making a simple adjustment like that in your life, without even trying, you'd spend almost 15 hours a week in the presence of the Lord? What would happen if you began creating space, making space for God to speak into your life? For some of you, God has something to say. and You just haven't given him any room to say it. And the truth is, so often the Lord speaks most loudly in the silence. I was thinking about the passage this morning from Mark 1, and I'm going, if Jesus would have shown up in the middle of my work day, would I even have been present enough to notice it? I think part of this is creating space for solitude. Part of this is creating space for community. Have you ever noticed that when you hang around somebody that is living the adventurous life of Jesus, it calls out something in you? Like when, when you're around somebody that's really living with God, you're like, whoa. Something, something is happening there. I want whatever it is that she has, or I want whatever it is that he has. And I could tell a hundred different stories just from within our own church family, but I'll tell you one that happened recently. Uh, we have a guy that was a part of our church uh, for years and got called by God into mission work. I'm not going to say his name because I don't want it to get on the internet and for him to be uh, uh, in, a, in a dangerous position. He's working in a dangerous part of the world. But I remember uh, God called him into this work uh, over in the Middle East, and God's just done amazing things. He came back to visit his family a few months ago, and he and I are sitting down eating lunch over at Satco off the of 21st, chips and queso. They have the best queso in town, I think, personally. But we're sitting there, we're eating chips and queso, and we're talking about what he's been experiencing. And I said, hey, man, what are you dreaming about in the Lord? Like, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And he's telling me about all the stuff that Jesus has been doing. And he said, you know what I'm really praying about? He said, I'm praying that God would open a door for me to move into Afghanistan or Pakistan and uh, to plant churches and to work with people in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I'm like, are you nuts? Like, you know, he's, he's telling me this story, and he begins telling me these stories about worshiping in these little house churches that they have to meet in the middle of the night in Afghanistan and how dangerous it is. And he's like sharing it. And I'm just like weeping like as he's talking. Part of me is inspired. Part of me is just absolutely challenged. As my friend is figuring out how to get in Afghanistan with the gospel, I'm figuring out, can I get my kids in a better school? And I go, there's got to be more. And when, you, when you're around the people of God, it calls out something in you when you see somebody Living for Jesus. I think about one of my friends who's a part of our church here, and she's a stay-at-home mom and just an amazing woman. She goes, every time I go to the park, 
I realize I'm not just there with my kids. I'm there for the other moms that are coming with their kids because maybe God is trying to break in. And every time I'm around her and her husband, when they're in our home, when they're sharing stories, just the life of God in me just kind of flourishes. And I go, how do we begin to to see Jesus more clearly? How do we begin to hear this call where he says, come and follow me? Where do we begin to get the courage to rearrange the entirety of our lives to be with Jesus? I believe it happens when we start making space. Say, man, God, we want to hear you. We want to go wherever you go. Do whatever you want us to do. Guys, you got to hear this. I say this with so much love. Ethos cannot just be a place where nice Christians gather and sing about an adventurous God and then walk out of here living boring lives. I don't don't know how long this is going to be around. I mean, I hope God lets Ethos be here until the day we're dead. And hopefully that's a... I hope hope I'm not dead for a long time, but I hope Ethos gets to hang around. But Ethos is not the end goal. And this is not the end goal. It is men and women that have stood before the Lord and have said... You are worth rearranging the entirety of our lives for. And we don't do this perfectly, but we come in here in the midst of all of our sin and our struggle and our junk and say, God, because of what you've done, we will drop the nets. We'll go wherever it is. And I think it happens when we come together and we make some space. I don't think it's just making space. I'll give you one other thing. I think the kind of second thing is that we have to become a people that are comfortable with risk. A life of faith, by its very nature at times, is going to feel like a life of risk. And Jesus will so rarely call us to things tomorrow that require less of his presence than we have today. So often Jesus says, come on, come on, come on. You look at the story of Abraham or all these people through the scriptures, and it's just this increasing journey of faith and risk. And over and over and over as we listen to God, as we see a picture of Jesus, you're going to have to keep answering the question, Jesus, are you worth rearranging my life for again? And over and over and over, we keep taking the risk. In a culture like ours, we worship certainty. We worship safety and comfort and the idea that You'd put your hands in the life of anyone else. feels nuts at times. But that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To say, Jesus, we believe that you are best suited to lead my life. Here are the nets. Here's the boat. Take me wherever it is that you want to take me, however it is that you want to take. I go, what would happen if we as a church family just said, God, would you give us a clearer picture of Jesus? Help us to see you more. Help us to understand what it is that you're doing because I have this sense that as Jesus gets bigger, our love for everything else will start to feel smaller and the adventure of God in us will begin to come to life. I want to give you four questions to wrestle with as we go into house churches this week as you get with your family. I invite you to get out your phone, get out something to write with. I want to invite you to write down these four questions just to process this week as we think about this passage out of Mark chapter 1. The first question is this. Are you following Jesus? Are you following Jesus? Not metaphorically, not just spiritually. I'm not even just asking if you've prayed a prayer, if you've gotten in water, given your life. I'm asking, is your life following in the footsteps of Jesus? Second question to wrestle with. I'm going to give you questions, not answers here. I want you to wrestle with the questions. Second question is, are you making enough space to hear the voice of Jesus? 
Are you making enough space to hear the voice of Jesus? Take this week, just look at your life, whatever it is. Don't be hard on yourself, just, just look, God. What's this like? Third question. What are the nets you are holding on to? What are your fishing nets that you're holding on to? What are the things that give you a sense of comfort, security, identity, purpose? You know, for some of you, this would be your work. For some of this would be your family. Maybe this is a status. Maybe it's a school that you go to. Maybe it's something that you do at that school. We all have different fishing nets. But here's a question. What are the things in your life that you will be tempted to hold on to at the expense of experiencing the adventurous life of Jesus? Fourth question. Where is God inviting you to take a risk? Where is God inviting you to take a risk? So often before God will rearrange our life, he'll rearrange our day. And the risk may not feel huge, like going to Afghanistan. Maybe it's walking across the street and getting to know your neighbor. Maybe the risk won't feel like bailing on your job tomorrow and having to have a fight with your wife because you just (laughs) took away all the family's money. Maybe tomorrow it's going to be you living with more purpose in that job. It may be small. It may be big. Whatever it is, the question is, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth it? Is it worth rearranging your life for? Let's pray. Father, I love you. Thank you that in your grace and kindness, you would come to people like us with such an extraordinary invitation. Jesus, I pray for clarity that we would see you, that we would know that you're worth the, the risk, that God, you would invite us into a place of joy and life and boldness in your kingdom right here, right now. God, I love you. I want to love you more. I want to know you more. God, even in the midst of our communion and our worship, right now, Lord, would you do something? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you call us out of places of comfort? Would you identify the nets in our life that maybe we need to let go of? And God, would you do it only you could do? It's in the name of Jesus that I pray and give thanks. Amen.